Okay, so tonight we are going to continue our exploration into the holidays. Tonight we are going to focus in on the second holiday of the holiday season, which is Yom Kippur. Now, the word Yom Kippur, because I think it's important to start with the name. Last week we talked about Rosh Hashanah as a head of a year, and we first and foremost explained why it's called the head of the year. Uh, interestingly enough, I'll tell you that we had a group here of uh, families and uh, parents of these families had been celebrating Rosh Hashanah for the last 30-something years and none of them had any idea what the name Rosh Hashanah meant. And furthermore, they had no idea why it was called the head of the year. They always assumed that it was just the Jewish New Year. So. I think that this is an opportunity not only to explore Yom Kippur, but it, to try and live a little more intentionally. If we're doing something, we're celebrating something, we should be asking the question, why, what does it mean? What is the significance? Because obviously everything has a purpose and a meaning. We should try to get as much of that as we possibly can. So what does the word Kippur mean? It means atonement, a day of atonement, similar to the word Kapara, which is when a person seeks, thank you Robert, kapara is when a person seeks some kind of atonement for something that they've done, forgiveness for something they did to another human being or between them and their creator. Yom Kippur is the day collectively as a community when we all seek atonement. We all seek forgiveness and therefore a fresh start to the coming year. That's what we're trying to accomplish. So once we understand what the intention of that day is, why we have that day, because if you backtrack to last week, we talked about the fact that Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. It's trying to set the tone and orchestrate what the rest of the year is going to look like, just like a head orchestrates everything that the body is going to accomplish and achieve. Now, imagine for a second, that you have something negative in your body. You ate something bad, something attached itself onto you. You have something negative in the body. And the head is trying to orchestrate that the body should be healthy because that's the head's responsibility. And before it can think about what it wants to accomplish and achieve and its different objectives, and the first and foremost needs to make sure that the body is healthy and strong. It needs to reject any negative substance that somehow entered into this physical specimen. Well, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur works exactly the same way. You want to orchestrate a good coming year. That's your intention on Rosh Hashanah. But as you go through that process of introspection and you start asking yourself, Uh, there we go. As you go through that process of introspection, you start asking yourself, okay, what do I want to accomplish this year? What did I accomplish last year? Where did I fall short? You're going to realize that over the course of the last year, you swallowed some negative substances. There were some experiences in your life that were less than perfect that you now need to reconsider. And that is going to scare you. This is the head of the year. 
The head is scared now because it realizes there is negativity that's attached itself to the body. Come on in. Make yourself comfortable. Grab a hand out. So what does the head do? It says, hey, I need to reject and rid myself of any negativity in order to make sure that I start this new year with the best possible chance at success. And that's what Yom Kippur is designed. To say, wait a second, before I can start moving forward, I need to cleanse myself, rid myself of any negativity that attached myself over the past year. So there's often a misconception that Yom Kippur is a sad day. It's not. It is not a sad day. It's a solemn day. It's a day that has a real focus and cause and intention. You're trying to accomplish something that's really important and you got 24 and a half hours to do it. But it's not sad. If anything, there's a certain joy that comes from the fact that you've been given this opportunity and it's a tremendous gift, all right? You, you came to work for a year, boss hired you to accomplish and achieve an objective and eh, you were so-so. And the boss comes in after a year and says, hey, whatever happened over the past year, I know your, your intentions were good and I'm giving you a fresh start. That's an amazing gift. Incredible. I mean, how often does that happen in the real world? Rarely. But that's what God is telling us. So it's a serious day. It's an opportunistic day. Absolutely. But it's not a sad day. The saddest day of the year is not Yom Kippur. It's Tisha B'Av, when we commemorate the destruction of the temples. So that's first and foremost what we are trying to accomplish on Yom Kippur and why it's so important because we are trying to make this new coming year, fresh, clean, healthy. We want to cleanse ourselves of any negativity. Now, why this day? So last week, we highlighted that Rosh Hashanah is on the day when Adam and Eve were first created. And as we are trying to set the trajectory for our coming year, we do it on the anniversary of the creation of humanity to remind us what the potential of humanity is, what our potential is, what we're here to accomplish and achieve, going all the way back to the first human beings. So why is Yom Kippur on this day? It's not simply, well, it's seven days after Rosh Hashanah, a week. No, this day, what's that? Ten. ten well, yeah, ten days, depending on when you're counting, but yes, seven days and then Yom Kippur. Um, meaning a week of preparation and then Yom Kippur. But... It's not simply that. The actual day of Yom Kippur, the 10th day of Tishrei, that 10th day of that Hebrew month, is actually commemorating a very, very important monumental event that happened in Jewish history. So if you turn to the back page of your handout, I apologize, Robert. No, that's okay. If you turn to the back page of your handout, you'll see there's a historic timeline. This historic timeline recounts the origin of the Jewish people. Now, what do I mean by the origin of the Jewish people? That's a, an intentional word. Who was the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham, first Jew. First one to recognize monotheism, to reach out and form a relationship with God. And he married Sarah, 
and they had Isaac, and Isaac married Rebecca, and they had Jacob, and Jacob married, well, he married a lot of women, but uh, four, and they had the 12 tribes, and eventually 70 souls all went down to Egypt. So there were Jewish individuals before, but the first time that the Jewish people are referred to as a nation, as a people, is when they leave Egypt, when they leave Mitzrayim. They're not fully Jewish yet because they haven't gotten the Torah on Mount Sinai. They've gotten a couple of traditions, circumcision, Shabbat, uh, calendar system, but the relationship is cemented when they receive the Torah, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So take a look at the timeline. On the 15th of Nisan, this is of course a Hebrew month, they leave Egypt. And that's when we celebrate Passover, Pesach, every single year. Then from the 15th of Nisan to the 60th of Sivan is 50 days. And we celebrate that, we commemorate that 50-day journey through the desert by counting the Omer every night, every day. And then on the 6th of Sivan, 50 days later, they get the Torah. They get to Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, and the relationship is cemented, confirmed. Then what happens? Moses goes up to heaven, or at the top of the mountain, and he learns Torah for 40 days. 40 days he was up on the mountain. He didn't eat, he didn't drink. If you don't believe me, ask Charlton Heston, he'll tell you. Right? He was there too, apparently. Okay. If you didn't get that, it's okay. Don't worry. You didn't watch the Ten Commandments. You're not missing anything. Not with us any longer. Who, Charles and Aston? And, yeah, Aston. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, didn't he have some playing the Planet of the Apes? Yeah. Could. I have to ask Robert. <laughs> that was after. That was after. So, he goes up on top of the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, and then he comes down, and what happens? He witnesses the Jewish people serving a golden calf because, of course, they miscalculated. They thought that they had already completed the 40-day period. Moses left them, and they're alone, and they built a golden calf because they need some kind of leadership. And so they build this golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain, and what does he do? Before he even gets all the way down to the bottom of the mountain, he smashes the tablets. So when does he smash the tablets? He breaks the tablets on the 17th day of Tammuz, which is 40 days. Now, coincidentally, that is also a day that we fast on the Jewish calendar because it's the day when the siege of Jerusalem began, which would lead to the destruction of the temple. So just as a sidebar. So now Moses, God tells Moses, all right, I'm going to wipe out all the Jewish people. They broke like rule number one and rule number two. And I'm done with them. And I'll start a new nation from you, Moses. And Moses says, hey, you wipe them out, wipe me out too. I don't want any part of it. That's a man. That's a leader. That's a true leader. Lives for his people. So God says, okay, fine. Go back up the mountain. And he prays to God for 40 days. So now he goes back up the mountain from the 18th of Tammuz till the 30th of Av, and he prays to God for forgiveness. What happens? Then nothing happens after the first uh, 40 days. Then Moses prays to God for forgiveness and is finally forgiven after a third set of 40 days. 
And then Moses descends with the second set of tablets on the 10th day of Tishrei. So after the first 40 days, finally God says, okay, you'll be forget. the Jewish people will be forgiven. I'm going to give you a second set of tablets. So he spends another 40 days there with the second set of tablets and he comes down. So what day does he come down? On Yom Kippur. It's not Yom Kippur yet, but on this day, the 10th day of Tishrei, Moses descends with the second tablets. And what did that mean? When, they, when Moses came down with the second set of tablets, that meant God had forgiven them completely. Not, well, I forgive you, but our relationship is not the same. Our relationship will never be the same. No, I have forgiven you, and I'm even going to give you a second set of tablets. And in fact, according to uh, the Medrash, according to the commentary, when Moses went up the second 40 days, he actually learned things that he did not learn the first. So the Jewish people actually gained from this entire experience. Of course, it's not the ideal way to, to have it happen, but it teaches us a very powerful lesson that the fact that we sin and we make mistakes and we err is an opportunity to find growth that you would not have if you always did the right thing. Right? You ever been in the class and you have the teacher's pet, goody two-shoes, does everything that they're supposed to, they always listen, that was not me, in case anybody's wondering, that was not me. So that one, right? And then you have the other child that, you know, is an intelligent kid, but they push and they, and they try to find whatever angle, that was me. And what happens in the process of them learning this behavior from trial and error is that they become more committed when they finally get on that right path, they become more committed, more focused than even the kid that never was challenged or tested. And that's the story of the Jewish people. So what we're actually commemorating when we get up there on Yom Kippur is we're saying, hey God, remember that first time, that first time that you forgave us for worshiping a golden calf, not 40 days after you came down on the mountain and with the whole, the whole uh, scene that took place, and they heard God's voice. Imagine, Stephen, they heard God's voice. I mean, it blows my mind. Could you imagine doing something like that 40 days after hearing God's voice? And yet, God forgave them. Didn't it say they saw his voice, too? They saw the voice. They heard the lightning. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Their senses were out of whack. <laughs> it says that the voice was so powerful that they actually passed away. They couldn't live and be sustained. And that's why ultimately the rest of the eight were said by Moses. So, but yes. So that is why Yom Kippur is set on this day. And you'll actually notice, I'll point it out for those of you that are here on Yom Kippur, is that we allude to this a couple of times during the prayers. As this being a day of forgiveness, not because we made it so, but because this is the day that God first forgave us. And that's what we're tapping into. So we have a little bit of an understanding as to what the name Yom Kippur means, why it's scheduled on that date. How was this day celebrated in history? So as you can see, if you go back to the first page, entry into the Holy of Holies. That's page one. Back to page the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. So there are different levels of holiness in this physical world, according to Jewish tradition. For example, Israel, the land of Israel, is a holy land. 
right? When you move to Israel, you say you made Aliyah. The word Aliyah means to ascend. Even though if you're living next to the Dead Sea, you're going way, way down. But spiritually, you are ascending. So the whole land, whole, whole land is holy. Within the land of Israel, Jerusalem is a holy city. There are actually four holy cities in the land of Israel. Jerusalem, Hebron or Hebron. Do you know where the other ones are? Tzvat. Yeah. Tzvat. Tiferia. Very good. Tiferia is one that most people don't get. Uh, Tzvat in the north and Tiberias, Tiferia, which is on the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret. Those are the four holy cities. But Jerusalem is the holiest city. Within Jerusalem, you have the Temple Mount, of course, which is super holy. In fact, even today, while you're not physically allowed to go to certain areas on the Temple Mount for reasons of security and safety, we actually, we Jews don't go up to the Temple Mount because it's such a holy place and we don't have that level of purity that the Jews once did. So we actually don't go up to the Temple Mount at all. But that would be the next level of holiness. Then within the temple itself, there are other levels of holiness. But the holiest spot in the holiest city, in the holiest country in the world, is the Holy of Holies. And the holiest man, the high priest, only goes in there on Yom Kippur, on the holiest day. But there's an important point to all of this. Because you might say to yourself, well, I'm not the high priest. I'm not even a regular priest. Okay? What does it matter to me? Why does it make any difference in my life, Stephen, whether he goes in or he doesn't go in? Why is it so important? And you'll see it's really important. The, Jew, the people would be gathered in the temple courtyard and they would be waiting to see if the high priest came out or not. Because if he didn't go in with pure thoughts, he would not emerge. He would die there. Which brings up the question of how do you get him out? You know how they would do it? No, I wanted to ask you, how would they get him out? So in the Talmud, it says that they would, this was the way they would take, it was also the way that they cleaned the place. They would lower a box from the ceiling, from the roof, with a person inside the box, and a door, they would open the door from the box, they would take the, the dead priest out, or if they had to clean, the same way. But being inside of a box, it was kind of like they were in a separate room. And if he was pure of thought, pure of character, he would emerge. And that was a sign that they had been well represented on this holy day by their, their representative, the holy priest. It says they would start singing and dancing. There's a special song that we sing called Mare Kain, all about the joy that happened when they saw the priest come out. Now, during the times of the temple, the Jewish people were not always in the best of situations. And specifically, if you look around the time of the Common Era, so roughly 2,000 years ago, the high priest at that time often secured his position through bribery. Bribery. If those of you that are scholars of history, there were Pharisees and Sadducees, so there was groups of Jewish people that were, uh, did not interpret the Torah correctly, did not practice the traditions, but they were of priestly lineage. And they would bribe the Romans, the Roman proctor, whoever the, uh, the procurator who was in charge of the land at the time to get the position of high priest. And you know how long they would hold that position for, Stephen? 
until Yom Kippur. And it's amazing, it's amazing the arrogance that they would have. Because they would still go in there on the day, knowing who they really are, and generally not coming out. It says that there was one time period where, uh, after a number of years it happening, they would tie a string to the Kohen's foot as a way of being able to pull him out afterwards because they would pass every single year. So the reason that it's so important and significant is the following. One of the, the, the dangers that you have on a day like Yom Kippur is that you are completely wrapped up in a cocoon of holiness. And in this moment where you're fasting, and as we're going to talk in a little bit, maybe you're wearing white clothes, you spend more time in synagogue, you become disconnected from the rest of the world. It naturally happens. But you have to bridge those feelings that you have into the rest of your life, or they become inconsequential. It becomes an incredible moment that lasted in a 25-hour period, and then boom, you go back to who you were before. And of course, that defeats the purpose, right? So this story about the Holy of Holies is the way we see the fusion, the merging of a physical world, a physical person, and holiness, spirituality. We see them coming together in an individual, getting dressed, studying, preparing, all of the thought process that went in for the high priest, going into the the ritual bath and out of the ritual bath and changing their garments and all the detailed parts of his service on that day. We see it in this special place, a physical place. The temple wasn't some hologram. It was a real physical place that you touched, that you stood on. Israel, it's a real thing. You can walk there, you can breathe the air. That is an example of how our physical and spiritual lives are really merged and intertwined. So on a day like Yom Kippur, where you're experiencing this intense holiness, you still are conscious of the fact that you will be judged by how you take those feelings and transfer them into your everyday life. The day after, the day after that, and so on and so forth. And that's the example that you see as they go through the Holy of Holies, a physical person in a physical place experiencing real intense spirituality. So what are some of the customs that we do? Let's start with the, uh, the day before. Because of course, the way you experience something is often connected with how you prepare for it. Uh, I know people that do zero preparation and they just show up on Yom Kippur. And sometimes you could see it takes them time uh, to borrow football terminology. If you don't play during the preseason, the practice games that happen before the season starts, then your first game of the season, you'll often look a little disjointed. And it'll take you maybe a quarter or a half before you finally start to get the rhythm because you didn't prepare. So what's the box excuse? Yeah, the box. This is a positive conversation, Robert. Let us not... Uh, uh, a, a couple of l'chaims and we'll talk about the bucks. <laughs> They're going to need to ask for a lot of forgiveness on Yom Kippur. That's all I can tell you, Mr. James. But in all seriousness, you have to prepare. So how do you prepare for Yom Kippur before? Okay. So one of the traditions is to ask forgiveness. Why is asking forgiveness so important? And when I say ask forgiveness, I mean literally asking forgiveness. We call our friends, our family members, and we say, hey, if something happened, there was some beef between us, I'm sorry, 
I, I'm, I'm asking for your forgiveness. Uh, and sometimes we don't know if there was something specific. Sometimes we do. Sometimes there was something that happened, a serious blow up in a family, in a group of friends, at work. And this is the opportunity to clear the air. And make no mistake, this is essential if you want to start a fresh, clean slate. Because showing up on Yom Kippur and asking God for forgiveness without going to the party that you grieved is a non-starter. It's a non-starter. So step one, forgiveness between you and your fellow human beings. Once you've done that, then you can turn to God and say, hey, I know I let you down too with my conduct and behavior, and I'm asking you to forgive me. So it's a great opportunity. And I will say this, when we were kids, I remember we studied we studied a, a commentary that says if you ask someone for forgiveness three times and they don't forgive you, then they're the ones that carry the blame. So as kids, we would like go to each other and say, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Three times. And then the other one has to go back and say, do you forgive me? Do you... Anyway. Uh, but the point is this. Because, because everybody understands the value of this day and everyone starts to, wants to start on a fresh, clean slate, sometimes people are more open to giving forgiveness also at this time. So sometimes you might have a relationship that you just can't seem to, to fix. And you've asked forgiveness and it hasn't worked. And sometimes this moment can help the other individual actually rise to the occasion and say, you know what, it hurt and I've struggled with it. It's time, it's time. I wanna start fresh too. And me not forgiving you keeps me from starting with a clean slate as well. So it's an opportunity for both sides. Does God forgive everything? Well, we know this. The word teshuva, to return, means that in any moment, a human being has the ability to hit the reset button by returning back to who they truly are. That's what we're told. So even if you've done something terrible, you have the opportunity to hit the reset button, shed those layers, the negativity that attached itself, and start fresh from that core which remains pure. The next tradition that we have is kaparot, which means atonements, and that can be done in a couple of different ways. The most traditional way of doing that is to take a chicken uh, and to swing it over your head three times, I know, it sounds crazy, it is. Uh, and after that, the chicken is ritually slaughtered and eaten, like all chickens are. Um, and the idea is not necessarily, sometimes people ask me, well, are you saying that the chicken is dying for your sins to atone for your sins? No. The idea is that by going through this process and seeing the chicken experience life and then experience death and so on and so forth is a reminder of the fact that you, you and your behavior and your actions may have committed certain things that are worthy of death, that are a demonstration that your life really is not the way it should be, the way it intended. And so hopefully it's a stark reminder to get back on the right track. It doesn't necessarily mean that the chicken is dying for your sins. Absolutely not. Is there any symbolism for the number of times that you circle the chicken around your head? Well, so the number of times you circle the chicken is three. I don't know if there's any symbolism specifically here, but three is a number that in Judaism is considered a strong number, right? 
it's how we solidify something. So lots of things are done three times, even when we wash our hands and many of the prayers are said three times. Uh, and one of the, the ways that you can see that is, for example, if you go and squat in someone's property, if you sit in someone's property for three years and they say or do nothing, you could assume ownership of that property. First possession. Yeah. Right. So why? It's I called a chazaka. So you have strengthened your position. So three is the number by which we strengthen things. And so, yes, Jews had the original trinity. That is absolutely true. <laughs> and according to the way we see the, the number three, it represents us, the Torah, and God. And that's the source of the number three, but it's used in a lot of things. This is just another example. I don't know if there's specifically three with, with Kaprut, but I think that's the general idea. Yeah, Luis. This is the key thing yeah. you talk. So the people practice it right now, yep. or is it before? Or... No, ahora también, now too. Because I want problem. In Cuba, yes. the Jewish people not use this. Why? Oh, I'll tell you why. Because if you don't have a shochet, if you don't have a rabbi that knows how to slaughter the chicken... No, no, not only for the rabbi or the chicken. Remember, in Cuba have a large, different religion right. that uses the most animal. Ah, okay? so they don't want yeah, to... Yeah, the Jewish people don't use it because, you know, I touch. They don't the Jewish people, they say that the, next, uh -huh. the voodoo religion okay, can use the chicken every time. The Jewish people in Cuba are not using this. Right. Okay. After a long time, I stopped. You can use... Number one and number two, no have chickens. Well, that's a good reason. No chickens, no... Do yeah. So you could do it with money. Uh, you take the value of a meal. Typically, people take like $18 and they'll do it with money. Uh, some people do it with fish. Um, the idea is to really go through this mental process. A day two before Yom Kippur, this physical process where you really reflect on what you've done and some of that negativity and the commitment to really ridding yourself of that behavior. Okay. Do you, uh, do you know how to do that? I am not a there ritual butcher. No. There is not. There is not a shochet in Tampa. Just like there's no bakery. Just like there's no bakery. I actually go to Orlando. I go to Orlando. The rabbi in Orlando arranges a. Uh, no, different one. Ranges of delivery of chickens, and then there. But they don't actually. They don't actually uh, butcher the chicken there. The chickens come, you do the ceremony, you say the prayer, and then they go back to South Florida, and they do it in South Florida. Mm. Yeah. So, back in history, when the sacrifice and also this chicken were created as a custom, people, like, they lived on animals. They had them at home, they killed, they had attachment, feelings. Sure. Nowadays, we don't, like, have chicken at home. So, they're slaughtered in the factories. So, do people really, really like, relate to their feelings? Or, like, just even thinking, oh, instead of this chicken, like, this chi actually, this chicken represents me. Like, do they really I will tell you, mind? it's a good question. And... You know, obviously I can't tell you what every person is thinking, but if you go to a large Jewish community and you go through this process, I'm telling you firsthand, and they do it right there in front of you, you know, 
you have the chicken, and then the the, the ritual butcher comes, and di- and there's actually a mitzvah to cover up the blood of the chicken as a way of showing respect, because blood represents the essence, the soul of something. So you actually take some dirt and you cover the blood of the chicken. It's a it's a big mitzvah. Um, watching that process and thinking about that process, uh, it can be it can be profound. I'm sure there are some people that grow through it, just like the motions, whatever. Yeah, let's go out for a coffee afterwards, you know, and, and different people approach things in different ways. But I, I would tell you from experience, it can still be a very profound um, and moving experience. Absolutely. Okay, the final thing uh, is to receive honey cake. And you know, like we say, symbolism is all about intention. So honey cake is a food that's customarily eaten around this time because it's sweet. And we spoke last week about the importance of sweet foods. But here, it's specifically to ask for honey cake. So the tradition is that you go over to a friend and say, I am asking for honey cake. Why? Because you're trying to symbolize that if you needed to ask for something this year, there was something missing in your life that would require you to go and seek it out and search it out, this should be the item. This should be it. This moment where I'm asking of something, that should fulfill any need that there was for me to go out and seek assistance over the coming year. Do you ask before? Typically, yes. But sometimes people do it up till the middle of Sukkot. But you try to do it before Yom Kippur. Okay, so initially in the Talmud it tells us that God said for the Jewish people to really atone for their sins, absolve themselves and start fresh, they need to fast for two days. Two days. However, because love for the Jewish people, God said, you know what, you fast for one and eat on the other one and I'll consider it as if you fasted for two. I'm not paraphrasing. That's what it says in the Talmud. So therefore, the day before Yom Kippur is like a minor holiday. It's like a minor holiday. You don't say Tachna, even in the morning. Typically, you wouldn't say in the afternoon before, like on Shabbat. Even in the morning, it's like a minor holiday. I'll dress differently the day before Yom Kippur, uh, and I will have meals. Meals, and when I have a meal in honor of a holiday, that means I'm washing, I'm sitting down, um, there's going to be some challah, maybe I'm going to have a couple of different dishes, some soup, it's going to be a meal, two of them. So how does that work? I will have a meal uh, sometime around noon, 12, one o'clock, and then I'll have another meal about an hour and a half roughly before Yom Kippur, which is known as Su'udat HaMafsaket, the meal of separation. Because that's the last meal that I'm having before I begin my fast. So it's really a day to celebrate. What are we celebrating? What I said before, we're celebrating this opportunity that the boss said, Mendy, come in, let's start over again. I know this past year didn't go exactly as we intended it. It's all good. Let's start fresh. The symbolism is not over yet. Kreplach. Who knows what kreplach are? Kreplach are like little dumplings. Now, you can make them um, more like dumplings where they're uh, boiled. Maybe you have them in a soup. Or you can fry them so they become nice and crispy. Depends on your personal preference. They're yummy. 
but essentially what it is is it is a some kind of skin a dough a pastry dough a wonton wrapper and then inside it has some kind of filling chicken beef or whatever it is why do we have it so the idea is that it represents concealing the judgment the filling represents whatever harsh severe decree we might have really earned after our judgment on Rosh Hashanah and we're concealing that with the skin with this wonton wrapper and it tastes really good so that's the symbolism behind it. It's a popular dish primarily in Ashkenazic communities. You wouldn't see it in Sephardic communities as much, but it is something that's um, been done for many, many years. Uh, tzedakah is given generously. Why is tzedakah given generously on this day, charity? Because we know it says that charity has the power to break a decree. Charity can take away even the harshest sentences that may have been settled against us. And for the best story that's told, I believe it was Rabbi Kiva, um, his daughter got married. And wonderful girl, sweet girl, excuse me. She gets married and the night she goes to bed with her husband, she wakes up the next morning and she turns around and in the headboard above her bed, there is a dead snake a poisonous snake, dead snake, and her hair bonnet has pierced the head of the snake. She had gone to sleep the night before, taken out her hair piece, stuck it into the headboard, I guess it was made out of wood, and without knowing, she had killed the snake. Poisonous, deadly snake. She comes and tells her father, this great sage, what had transpired. He tells her, sit down, tell me everything that happened yesterday. She says, okay, you know, well, dad, I was getting ready for the wedding, so went and got my dressed and put on some makeup and got prepared and so on and so forth. And then I came to the hall and I saw that the band was gathering and this and that. And we went through the ceremony and we were dancing and so on. And um, as I was going to sit down on my chair, I noticed that there was an elderly individual standing on the corner of the, uh, of the reception room looked a little hungry, so I took some food from my table, and I went and I gave it to him, and then I came back to my table, and then we started dancing. He says, wait! That was it. You had been decreed to die the night of your wedding. That was what God had determined was your fate. And your act of charity, even in the moment of greatest joy and celebration for yourself, that act of charity broke the decree. It literally broke the decree and changed your fate. So this and many stories tell us that the power of charity is so intense. And that's why on the day before Yom Kippur, when we're trying to uh, avert any possible decrees, we give extra charity. Okay, what else? Confession. So we're going to talk in a little bit about the power of confession. That's something we do numerous times over the course of Yom Kippur. And we actually start doing it a little bit before. So we do a confession, just a confession. Uh, an hour or two before um, before the Yom Kippur starts, uh, dipping in a mikvah. So a mikvah is a ritual bath. That is traditionally a mitzvah for women. Only a woman dips in a mikvah according to her cycle and makes a blessing. A man does not have a mitzvah and obligation to do so. However, it is a spiritually powerful experience. And it is a cleansing experience. Just like the world was born from water, it says, in the beginning, 
the world was covered with water, and then creation. A human being is birthed from water. Amniotic fluid, mostly water. Been there and done that. Okay, So that idea of immersion in water is a way that we rebirth ourselves. And so historically, even men would use the opportunity to dip in a mikvah before a holy day like Yom Kippur. And the high priest did it numerous times over the course of the holiday. Uh, so nowadays, it's only a custom for men before the Yom Kippur is going to be uh, It depends on the community. There are some communities where women do it too. It's not as common, but there are some places where they do it as well. In some Sephardic communities, they do. Okay. Uh, you can continue eating after the final meal. You don't have, that doesn't have to be the last, uh, I, we always have people that come in uh, the night of Kol Nidre and you know, they've got like a water bottle and they wait till like the last, like, how much time do I have left, Rabbi? 60 seconds, and they got like their last licks. I guarantee you it does not make you fast any better. Maybe it's psychological, it does not improve your fasting. The, 25 hours. Exactly. Well, you still got to start at the right time. The first time that I fasted, I was 13 years old. I was after my bar mitzvah and I ate like crazy. I was so scared of fasting. And I had a stomach ache, I threw up. And I fasted great. And what it told me is <laughs> it's psychological. Mostly fasting is psychological. Yes, people that are addicted to caffeine go through withdrawal symptoms, but for the vast majority of people, it is psychological. If you tell yourself you're okay, you'll be okay. Okay, what else? Blessing of our children, one of the most beautiful traditions. Some families do this every Friday night. Uh, it depends on your personal custom. Our personal custom is that we do it once a year before Yom Kippur, and that means that I would go over to my dad and he would give me this special blessing. He'd bless each one of the children individually. It was a very wonderful opportunity uh, and a special time. And it, it reminds you of what you're celebrating. Not just the fact that you have a chance to atone and start fresh, but to remind yourself of what your priorities are in life. And the two are really interconnected. Because your mistakes came probably because you lost sight of what was truly important and you were distracted. And so now you're starting to start a clean slate, you remind yourself that if you stay true to what is family and faith, where the real values need to be, then you will make less mistakes in the coming year. We light candles, just like we do at the start of every holiday, uh, and you say the blessing of Shachiano, which is a blessing we say, Anytime we do a mitzvah for the first time. Well, celebrating Yom Kippur is a mitzvah, so you say the blessing of Shachiano. Um, and it is actually customary to start Yom Kippur a few minutes early. So I start Kol Nidre, the first prayer of Yom Kippur, a few minutes before the fast technically starts, a way of showing God that we're anticipating. We're looking forward to this opportunity, so we don't wait the last minute to start it, we actually start a few minutes early. And how many candles do you light? Uh, the same amount that you would light. Uh, so if you're a, a single guy, you know, you can light two candles. If you're just married, you light two candles. If you've got children and you light one for each child, then you would light. So whatever you light on a Shabbat and the holidays, you would light the same thing. Uh, yeah. And if someone's 
uh, sometimes people are coming to show people, we have candles here as well. People can light candles here right before if they don't want to light it at home because of a safety issue. We always provide that. Now you show up. And by the way, if you don't say Shekhyanu because you're not lighting candles, the man says Shekhyanu, and you'll see it in the Machzer. And that's why you're saying it, because normally on a regular holiday, when would you say Shekhyanu? When you make Kiddush. But you don't make Kiddush because there's no drinking of wine. So you just say the blessing when the holiday begins, if you're not lighting candles. Some, the night of Yom Kippur, put on a kittel, which is like a white, uh, thin robe. Um, other people simply wear white. And that is a custom, not an obligation in any way, shape, or form. But the idea is that we are going to assume an angelic state. An angelic state. And white is a color that represents the angels. Additionally, white also represents purity. So we want to try and do anything we possibly can that will put us in this pure frame of mind. And that is why we wear the white. We wear a talus, a prayer shawl at night, which you don't do any other time during the year. You wear a prayer shawl throughout the entire prayers, uh, men do, and that's only done on Yom Kippur. Uh, some of the other things that we do, we, um, we normally say the Shema, right? We're all familiar, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And then the second line in the Shema, the Baruch Shem line, we normally say quietly. The reason we do is that tradition tells us that this is a prayer that the angels say. And Moses overheard the prayer when he was up on the mountain. Well, we're in angelic state. So we say that prayer loudly on Yom Kippur, whereas the rest of the year we say it quietly. Because today we feel more empowered being in this state of intense purity. So that's all on the night of Yom Kippur. And uh, the, the prayer service probably lasts, I would say, about an hour, a little bit more than an hour. Uh, if you include the rabbi's sermon, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, and it's, it, there really isn't very much else tradition associated with it. You try not to speak any idle talk on Yom Kippur. So you want to be conscious of the fact that the entire day is special. You can say psalms, you can read something that's going to provide you introspection or do some studying. But honestly, the best thing to do the night of Yom Kippur is sleep. Because what happens is when you're fasting, your body gets tired. So if you get a good night's sleep, you will have energy when you hit the afternoon, four or five o'clock. People that don't sleep well the night of Yom Kippur, their bodies start to break down a lot earlier. So, trust me, I work on Yom Kippur every year. Fine. Morning. You rise in the morning and you start your day. So, before we jump to what are some of the prayers, let's jump to the laws. At the bottom of page one. Five laws of Yom Kippur. Number one, no eating and drinking. Okay. Number two, no marital relations. No physical intimacy between men and women. No bathing or washing. So, for example, what does that mean, no bathing or washing? Does that just mean you don't take a shower? Yeah, it means actually more than that. So every morning when I get up in the morning, first thing I do is I wash my hands. Not because they're necessarily dirty, but because at night, uh, when you're sleeping, a little bit of your soul departs and gets re-energized. 
and now it's come back into my body. And so a way of recognizing that transition, I wash my hands. When I wash my hands the morning of Yom Kippur, I only wash them till my knuckles. Mm. And you say, come on, Rabbi, that's not really bathing. But it reminds me right away when I start the day, this is a different day. I'm not the same person I was yesterday. I'm not just a regular human being today. I've removed myself from some of the physical, mundane, everyday obligations that I normally have. Eating, bathing, uh, physical intimacy, no anointing oneself with perfumes, and no leather shoes. Those are all physical comforts that we engage in. The leather shoes thing is really more historical. As, you know, today, people kind of ask me, well, my leather shoes are less comfortable than my sneakers. How does that make any sense? But historically, that was a sign of comfort. You put on leather shoes, that was people that didn't have means walked around barefoot, mm. right? Leather shoes meant you had a certain level of success. So that's more historical. We still adhere to it. I'll wear something plastic or whatever it is. But it's all designed to make myself uncomfortable, take away the everyday pleasures. And why is this important? Because if you open up the Torah, Stephen, you will not see anywhere in the five books of Moses that it says, thou shalt fast on Yom Kippur. It says, thou shalt pain thyself. Te'anu esnaf shosechem. Pain, pain. Te'anu esnaf shosechem. Literal translation? Make yourself uncomfortable. Inui. But ta'anid, it, mean, uh, it means fast, no? Because we translate it as fast. That's uh, like we say teshuva means repentance. No, it doesn't. The word teshuva means to return. We retranslate things because in our modern world, this is what it means. So... What do we think of on Yom Kippur? When someone says Yom Kippur, what's the first word that pops into your head? Fast. But in reality, it's not about fasting. It's about much more than fasting. It's about reaching this higher existence, removing yourself from your regular human existence above the materialism that you have every single day where you're consumed having to take care of your body all the things that your body has to do. And by removing yourself from that, you can rid yourself of all the negativity that was there, reach this pure state, and then bring it back down with you the next day. So all of these things are designed to help you accomplish that. And that's what te'anuas nafshay sechem means, not simply fasting. So, as I said, so yes, no uh, hand washing. If you use the restrooms, you can wash your hands. Interestingly enough, if you prepare food, you could wash your hands. If you have a medical condition, you could wash your hands. But nothing that would be associated with a pleasure or anything in any way, shape, or form. Oral hygiene. Oral hygiene? You mean like brushing your teeth? Brushing, no. flossing. Yeah. No. Um, no, you can't brush no. your teeth. Um, I would tell you that most people would say you probably should not brush your teeth. Wow. Yeah. What if there's special toothpaste? Yeah, what if you drop? Only can use on Shabbos water, you know. 
a special oh you're but that's a separate issue you, you're talking about whether you can use toothpaste because it's shabbat you have to consider whether or not it's going to be eating or drinking if you're going to be consuming some of it so in yom kippur you have another concern and consideration so i'm not sure about brushing your teeth ask your local rabbi i would tell you after the recording um it's a good question though absolutely a very good question uh what was the other thing that we were, i was going to say can't think. Anyway. Oh, flossing. One thing I will tell you that you need to be careful is if you bleed when you floss, mm -hmm. you absolutely cannot floss because you can't cause yourself to bleed. Mm -hmm. So that's for sure. Even on a regular Shabbat, you're not supposed to cause yourself to bleed. So if you have any concern that you might bleed when you floss because you don't floss regularly, <clears throat> then you should definitely not floss. All right. Leather belt, no issue. Significance of the, oh, so let's go through the day of now. Yes, so we have the day of, and during the day of Yom Kippur, you have a series of prayer services. So you start off the night before, you have the evening service, you come in the morning, 9.30, you start off with the morning service, it goes for about 10.30, 11.30, probably about two hours, then you have Torah reading, and after Torah reading, at roughly 12 o'clock, you're going to have the additional service in honor of the fact that this is a special celebratory day like you would have on every holiday and so on. Then you're going to take a break, probably around 1.30 or so, and you come back here at 5.30 and you pray the afternoon service like you would on any day. That lasts about an hour till about 6.30, and at 6.30 you have a special service called Ne'ilah, the closing service. So how many prayer services do you have in total? Five. Mm -hmm. That's very unique. There's no other day like that. Every other day, regular day has three, holidays have four. Only Yom Kippur has five services. So the number five is significant. What is the significance of five? Why specifically do we see that five is highlighted over and over again? So there are a couple of different values related to the holiday of five. There are five books in the Torah. So remember, we're commemorating when Moses went up the mountain and came down with the second set of tablets. And what? The five books of Moses. Additionally, there are five senses. Mm -hmm. A human being has five senses. So, as I said, the goal on Yom Kippur is not only to experience a holy state, but to bring that holiness into your physical existence, into your five senses. Yom Kippur, the high priest would immerse himself in a mikvah, in a ritual bath, five times. But the point that I want to show is that there are five levels of the soul. So look at page two for a second. Everyone will see there's a gray paragraph. Everybody see that? <clears throat> five levels of the soul. What does that mean, five levels of the soul? A soul is a divine energy. Everybody has it. Can't get rid of it. It's there. Now, the divine energy is designed to give life to you, to your existence. But you are a complex individual, and not just you. Me and every other human being, we are complex people. We have lots of levels, lots of dimensions. So the soul gives energy, gives vitality to each one of these dimensions individually. And it's broken into five categories. So start off at the lowest category. The base category is called nefesh. That means spirit, and that gives life to our biology, 
Our physical existence. Our physical existence. The fact that you're alive and not dead, you are getting energy from your soul that provides you that basic vitality. That is your nefesh level. Then you have ruach. Ruach means breath. That refers to our emotional life. You have feelings. Right? Those feelings are influenced and receive energy from your soul. That's from level two. Then you have level three. Level three is nishama, or soul. And that is your intellectual life. Your intelligence also receives vitality. Those are the three levels within your physical realm. Then you have two deeper levels. You have Chaya, which is your transcendental life. That is your faith faculties. So the fact that you believe goes beyond logic and rationale. That's what faith is. That receives energy from level four. And then the highest level is level five. Yechida, which means oneness, the essence. The simple identity that you have. All the layers get pulled apart. The reason why someone is defined as who they are, even if they don't believe. It's very unique. In Judaism, you're Jewish, even if you don't believe in anything. There's no, there's no other There's no other definition that works kind of the same way. Because it's not purely a religion. It's an identity. And so even if you don't believe, you still have that essence, and that defines who you are. And that is the highest level. And that is the level you tap into at that fifth prayer service of Ne'ilah, roughly 6.30 on the night of the, the, the night of Yom Kippur, when Yom Kippur is just about to conclude. And for me personally, that is the most amazing experience. That is the most amazing experience. Yes, you're tired, and yes, you want to shower, and yes, you're hungry, and all of these things. But there's an adrenaline that comes from this process of preparing and beginning and praying and everything leading up to this moment. The word ni'ilah means to lock. And that's what it feels like. This is your last hurrah. You've made your petition and you've presented it and you've retooled it and you've refined it. And this is it. Your last moment to say, God, this is who I am. This is what I believe. You know what's in my heart. Please give me what I need to make it an awesome year. Last salvo. Two-minute drill, right? So it's a very powerful time. Um, and so, for example, here, while we have a... My brother leads services during a lot of the other prayers, I do this prayer myself. Because it's a moment that requires no explanation, no commentaries, you simply are as you are. And that's all of the associations with the number five specifically. Um, and right after you finish uh, Yom Kippur, of course, you wash your hands because you never washed your hands like you do in the morning, you only wash your knuckles, you wash your hands, you uh, then eat, right? Breakfast, as it's commonly known today. Uh, you know, there's a common perception that breakfast is some kind of, uh, it's important to eat, but breakfast is breakfast. You're 
breaking your fast. And so therefore, one should make sure that they complete their fast first, and then they break the fast. Today, there's a common misconception where people start breakfast at like five o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, I'm serious. Um, and so it kind of, it seems a little disconcerting because you can't break the fast until you finish the fast. And that kind of is finishing it a little bit early. So as nice as it is to get together with friends, as people do sometimes a break fast and they turn it into a whole uh, episode and so on and so forth, the most important thing is to celebrate Yom Kippur effectively. Um, and then when you're done and you're hungry, you go and eat something. <laughs> sometimes we lose sight of, of what the priority is. And the tradition is that after you finish Yom Kippur, you start planning the holiday of Sukkot. So you at least start talking about how you're going to build your sukkah. Some people go out the night after Yom Kippur and they actually build their sukkahs, which is incredible. You know, I've been fasting for 25 hours and then you go and build a sukkah. But it's a really important reminder, like we said before, that the goal here is to take all of those intense feelings that you've developed over the last 25 hours and to transfer them into the rest of the year not allow them to become a one-off experience that happened and then it's gone, but rather something that you continue to live with the day after and the day after. And the beauty of this month is that it's easy to continue to feel connected because four days later, you've got another holiday. You've got Sukkot. And then a week after that, you've got Simchat Torah. So the opportunity to sustain that is readily available to everyone. So I'll just conclude with the fact that these 10 days, these high holidays that we refer to, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, ultimately it's about one word. And they are commonly known as the 10 days of Teshuva, the 10 days of return. That is what they're about. It's about returning to who you are. It's not about something new. It's not a diet. You know, diets don't often work. Why? Because we're trying something new. The minute that you say, I'm trying something new, you're already starting two steps behind. New things are very difficult. They are. It's hard to sustain. You know, rather, this is nothing new. You're not trying to make the new version of yourself. No, you are simply going back to who you are, really. Who you are, essentially. And the negative behaviors that have attach themselves to you are just that. It's negative behaviors and it just has to be cleaned away. Uh, there, is a great, there is a great story that was circulated around on Facebook about a gentleman. He was a pianist, extremely talented, extremely, extremely talented. Um, and he had been, I believe he had been drafted and served in the military and experienced some intense uh, fighting overseas. And he was, uh, he was stricken by PTSD. He came back to the United States and he became homeless. Um, and, uh, you know, as you can imagine, people that live on the streets often don't have a chance to keep themselves well kept and his appearance changed dramatically and so on and so forth. And then I believe it was in Sarasota. They started a public project where they took pianos and they put them out in public spaces five or six pianos around. They painted them some cool colors. They put them out in public spaces. And this guy, who was tremendously gifted, he saw the piano and he started playing. And slowly but surely, people started to take notice and they realized this is amazing. Until finally, somebody saw one of the videos that were posted on social media and contacted him and said, 
we want to help you finish off your classical training. Um, and I think they got him invited to Juilliard and so on and so forth. And, and the most incredible thing is that once they got him off the streets and they were able to get him help and they got him cleaned up and you would look at this man and you, would, you saw a, a respectable person. The same person in the picture before. But he had, his beard had grown longer and his clothes were dirty and he hadn't you know, taken a shower and so on and so forth. What did it take? 100 bucks, 100 bucks, a couple of hours maybe? Because that's who he was essentially. He was always that human being. He was always capable of dignity, capable of respect, capable of accomplishing and achieving something. But he lost faith in himself because of the illness, because of the tragedies and the things that he had experienced. He lost the faith in himself. And once somebody came and gave that confidence back to him, they simply revealed who he really was the whole time. And they literally just washed off all of this negativity that had attached themselves to him. Well, that's what we are doing over the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We are returning to who we are really and truly. And if you can make that your intention, your focus, as you prepare over the next few weeks, you will have that confidence to actually make that change and get back to who you really are. Well, thank everyone for tuning in.